BDC, the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs, is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Jacqueline Sophia and Nora Sharab are the co-founders of City Social Enterprise, a venture that exists to improve the lives of refugees and displaced communities. Impact is behind each product that they sell as they work to complete their mission to educate, employ, and empower communities to lift themselves out of poverty. Yeah, I think the simplicity in it comes down to the human connection, which is a lot of times hand in hand with storytelling. Um, For us, we can publish all the impact numbers we want, but at the end of the day, people are going to connect most with another face, another person, uh, you know, a mother just like them who might be the only one earning income for her family and her husband's unable to work and she's got five, six kids at home and a mother-in-law she's caring for. Those are the types of things that people really connect to and really, um, you know, that impacts them. Important missions like this need funding so they can accomplish sustainability and focus on impact. That's where our topic expert, Sagal Duale, comes in. Sagal is the Senior Director of the Investment Readiness Program at Canada Women's Foundation, where she supports women and gender-diverse founders to access government funding so that they can scale their social ventures. The IRP is essentially a national program. It's funded by the Government of Canada, and it supports kind of a whole range of organizations that are really the ones that are solving Canada's kind of pressing challenges, everything from uh, affordable housing to food insecurity to uh, climate uh, resiliency. In this conversation, Sagal uncovers the ins and outs of applying for IRP funding and why grants like this are so important for social entrepreneurs and their ventures. 
Welcome to the show. Can you tell us the story of City? How did it all start? What does your team and mission look like today? Bring us back to the very beginning. It started with a bar of soap. Um, I recall Sophia coming to my home um, with a box of soap and saying, can you help us sell the soap? And I, at the time, was working really closely with the refugee community um, in Jordan and um, was mainly focused on my nonprofit and then also working uh, full-time with the UN. And we were mostly focused on education. So soap making and selling soap was not on my agenda at all. Um, And I remember looking at the soap and thinking, this isn't just about soap. This is more than just you know, women making soap. This is about women trying to create economic opportunities for themselves and um, really building themselves out of or pulling themselves out of poverty to create opportunities for their families. Um, But then there was, uh, I guess, conversation that there was another uh, person in the camp whose name was Jackie, who was also trying to help women, um, you know, get the soap out to market. And I was like, who's this Jackie girl? We need to connect with her. Um, and you know, within, within a couple of weeks, uh, um, we connected and we realized that we were both looking to achieve similar goals, which was to get these women to become self-reliant and to become, um, economically empowered through selling the soap essentially. Um, and that's, that's kind of what it, that's how we kind of got together. We saw that this, the, this was an opportunity for women to really make something out of their lives by using skills that they were taught um, and then bringing this product to market to really tell the stories of these women. Amazing. Jacqueline, what, what's your sort of inception perspective uh, in that story? I mean, yeah, it, it's basically what Nora mentioned. I, uh, I remember uh, being pulled into a room by a woman in the women's center, which it's, it's essentially the center in the camp where women seek out support for legal services. Sometimes if they're experiencing um, gender-based violence in the community, they'll go seek support through this office there. Um, but the women's center also s- serves as a, um, a facilitator f- uh, for various activities throughout the camp. And at the time, I had finished my Fulbright Fellowship a couple years ago and had decided to stay in Jordan. So I never booked a ticket. <laughs> you know, I essentially had a one-way ticket to Jordan when I had my Fulbright. Didn't go back. I mean, I went back for holidays, but here and there. Um, but didn't move back and ended up uh, befriending a group of women in the community in Jerash camp after I had been working there throughout my Fulbright. Um, and it really is a universal, uh, it's, a, it's a universal experience for a lot of the women in the camp to want to be self-reliant, want to earn a living for their families. Many of them have husbands or brothers who are experiencing uh, joblessness due to a variety of systemic issues, whether it's the fact that they are ex-Gazan refugees who cannot access the majority of jobs in Jordan because of their refugee and stateless status um, or because of chronic illness. A lot of them are unable to work full time and most of the jobs available are 
day labor jobs, very physically grueling uh, jobs for men. So most of these women are trying to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and figure out a way. And so the women I had been working with at the time, I had been teaching yoga as a yoga instructor to these women at the beginning. And it just kind of evolved into this, well, let's try something like this. Let's do this activity. And then eventually it became, we need to start earning a living. We can't just keep doing these, you know, activities without some sort of return on, you know, for our families. And we tried a lot of different things. I remember at one point we tried um, preserved olives, which is a, a really delicious food that's traditional to like the community there. But we didn't have a, a kitchen to work in and we tried tetris, which is like a, a embroidery technique that didn't, it was too time consuming for us. We just didn't have the resources for it. But eventually when I was in this meeting in the women's center, a woman came in and, and pulled me aside and pulls me up to this room and says, I need you to see something. She, she opens this door and there are just piles of olive oil soap sitting in this room. And she said, you know, the Italian embassy came, they taught us this workshop on how to make olive oil soap. And now we know how to make cold process olive oil soap, which is great because, you know, it's, it's another skill, but we don't know how to sell it mm. and we don't know where to sell it and we don't have the resources to sell it. So this is a, I mean, and this is not a unique situation in a lot of marginalized communities. This tends to happen. Um, you know, an organization has good intentions coming in, teach people a skill, let them learn something new, but then doesn't give them the, the follow through resources to, to do anything with it and to actually make a living off of it. So I had reached out to a mutual friend of Nora's and mine, and that's how we got connected because she had emailed me back and said, there is someone doing the same exact thing that you're trying to figure out. You guys need to meet. So like Sophia, I met Nora at her apartment and we sat down with our laptops and started putting together a, a website and um, a crowdfunding campaign because we knew we didn't have the money to do it ourselves. Um, and that's where it started. Amazing. And bring us to now. Where is the organization? Uh, what does it look like today? I mean, it's been almost, I think we're entering our seventh year and we've had a lot of learnings in the process. Um, we still work with incredible women that day in and day out teach us, you know, um, that they're willing to really push hard to break stereotypes of being refugees and to not, um, you know, just have this representation that because you're a refugee, you just want to rely on aid and charity. These are women that literally come to us and say, we want more work. Like we want to provide for our families. We want to pull ourselves out of poverty. These are communities that are tired of living in limbo and um, not having economic opportunities that are afforded to them. Um, you know, um, like the rest of the country, just because they happen to live in a marginalized refugee camp um, and, um, you know, not having status the way they do. So I guess the journey from when we started to now is the same because 
we continue to do what we do every day because we know that these women are relying on, you know, the products that we sell to market. Yes, things have changed. It's not just about selling soap. There's so much more to the game of starting a business. I mean, I wish it was just about selling soap because that's just the easy part. It's really about, you know, getting to market, telling your story over and over and over again, um, and really trying to elevate an experience and bring something forward that people are going to love, cherish, and see, you know, the meaning behind, um, whether it's a single bar of soap or, you know, companies that do corporate gifting with us that are committed to saying, you know what, we, we see what your company is doing and the mission that you guys are trying to achieve. And by, you know, making a purchase from us or, or buying from us, um, they're committing to our very mission of creating economic opportunities for this community that we are we're looking to to support and we realize that this is just one avenue if we're looking to really create a shift in the mindset of how we look at the growing refugee issues globally we need to start looking at at alternative solutions and for us that's where the social enterprise comes in that's where our model comes in to really step in with these artisanal communities and say, okay, how can we bridge the gap between the conscious global market and what we can offer, but also coming and connecting with these communities that don't, that simply don't have access to market, right? Um, a lot of the times it's because they just don't have the the network, the mentorship, the the guidance to, to kind of push forward. So I think that's really important. Um, it's where do we come in, in that grand scheme of you know, in that grand picture of things when we're working with these communities. Mm. Jacqueline, anything else to add on on where things have evolved and some of the lessons that you've learned throughout this this seven-year journey? Yeah, um, I think that there's there's obviously the, there's the business side, right, of which is connecting with our consumers, making sure that people understand the story that comes along with this incredible product and not just why the product is amazing, but why the entire package is amazing and, and worth the purchase. Um, but it's also about our responsibility and our accountability to the communities we work with. Because at the end of the day, their story is what's selling this soap, you know? And so there, it's great that people are connecting with this story and connecting with this product and this community on the consumer side. But then there's also the, the other side of that equation, which is really staying accountable to the communities that we're working with day in and day out to create these products. And it's not just about sourcing the products, but it's about really understanding what are the challenges, the unique challenges of those individual communities we're working with. And in refugee communities, even within the same camp, you have various challenges depending on the individual, depending on whether you're talking about uh, women or persons with disabilities, or you know, even within those sub-communities, you're going to have one person whose self-reliance in their household is much higher than another person's. And it's really not as simple as just running a business. It's you're, you're embedded in the lives of the people you're working with, whether you like it or not. And a lot of times that's a very emotional place to be. Um, 
and I don't think that, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of people say, oh, well, business is business. Well, maybe that's the case for some people, but that's not the case for us. And, and I think a lot of social enterprises can I and should identify with this. As a social enterprise, you're, we're often battling with this um, this thought, this process of like, you know, we have to put our business hat on and not our like, you know, we have to remind ourselves we're not a nonprofit. We own, we have we have certain goals that we're trying to achieve as a company, but then because we're so committed to the community, we're also like, but we can't neglect these other overarching issues that are also impacting the very people that we are trying to support. So it's difficult that when you are running as a company, you want to keep that you know, corporate hat on and make those corporate decisions. But oftentimes it's not to the benefit of the community. And we have to kind of look at innovative or alternative ways to come in and support um, the, the, the beneficiaries or say the communities that we're, we're normally trying to, uh, you know, work with. And, um, that's why it's, it's interesting because we're, we're always looking at ways to like bridge gaps or find other ways of cooperation or, um, you know, even coordinating our, our partnerships on the ground, because it's, it's not as easy as, you know, vendor, supplier, buy your product, sell it, you're done. There's, there's so much more that's in play when, when you are working with these type of communities. And um, understanding that is, is key um, um, in, in the work that we do. Unbelievable. And I'm excited to, to kind of dive deeper into um, how other organizations can learn from this type of structure and, and seek inspiration from you know, all the insights that you gleaned over the last seven years. So Saga, uh, let's talk about your journey. How did you become uh, connected with the social impact work of entrepreneurs? How did you get involved as the role, uh, you know, as director of investment readiness program at Canada Women's Foundation? Bring us through a bit of your career journey. Thanks, Kayla. Happy to, and thanks for having uh, having me today. Well, uh, I think fortunately my journey has been a really winding path. I'd say it's fortunate because I've been lucky to work with so many different organizations over the last decade. And although my journey has been really meandering, I think not really a straight line from point A to B, what's always really kind of grounded me, I think, is my academic background and international um, economics and finance and strangely mathematics. I've always kind of loved uh, kind of the rigorous way math is applied to everyday kind of problems and models. And so at the same time, I think when I was doing kind of my academic studies, I was always frustrated by all the you know, in inequities and inequalities that show up in our economic models and in capitalism. And so I wanted to try to understand these markets. I wanted, I wanted to understand business, trade, finance, and and economics, but also kind of alternative systems and, and ways of kind of structuring these global systems. And so I think when we talk about economics and economies, we can't really talk about the people who are driving, you know, the economy, which are businesses, which are people who are, you know, really inspiring social impact entrepreneurs, small and medium sized enterprises, businesses, all these socially minded organizations, they're at the forefront of building, you know, a good economy. And so I think, I guess with this curiosity, and frame of mind, it really led me to become initially a public servant. So I worked for many years in the federal governments in various roles. I worked in markets and trade developments um, with international partners uh, across kind of Southern uh, America on agricultural business and cooperation and kind of facilitating trade disputes between uh, countries. And from there, I kind of settled into the domestic side and I was really interested in the Canadian food business and kind of the supply chain that goes into developing a kind of a food business everything from processors and farmers and producers to manufacturers and food entrepreneurs. 
And so I had a really great experience, I think, working in the public sector, but I really wanted to be a lot more intentional with my choices and kind of career choices. So I took a break, explored working uh, with micro businesses in East Africa, where my family is from, and specifically working with women and kind of the gendered impacts of sustainable development. And so as a first generation immigrant myself and seeing kind of some of the barriers to financing and what my parents and friends kind of faced as newcomers to Canada as well, I was a little bit disillusioned by the lack of funding, especially to women. And so I shifted my focus to financing and went back to kind of understanding the financial frameworks. And so I started managing different funding opportunities here in Canada, mostly, you know, with my agricultural background, of course, I focused on food-based entrepreneurs, which kind of led me to working with social impact entrepreneurs in my current role here at the Canadian Women's Foundation. So for the past three years or so, we've been really working with amazing organizations like Nora and, and Jacqueline from City um, to kind of boost their participation in the social finance market to uh, support them in any way possible to get them ready on their journeys for investment, on their journeys for financing as they kind of like start to, you know, grow and sustain their own social enterprises. So it has been meandering, but uh, really kind of uh, interesting so far. Amazing, Sagal. That's I love hearing these sort of stories that you know in entrepreneurship often those pathways are meandering. In you know not entrepreneurship, it is meandering. So really incredible to see the breadth of experience that you've had in in the world um, and bringing that into the investment readiness programs. Fabulous. Throughout today's conversation, I think language is really important, and I think in in a lot of the work that Startup Canada does with the investment readiness program or talking about social impact or social entrepreneurship, there's a lot of confusion around what that even is. What is a social entrepreneur? What is a social enterprise? Uh, what is a social purpose organization or some of these nuances and what we even call some of um, you know, these entrepreneurs within these networks? I would love to get your sense, uh, uh, Nora and Jacqueline first, perhaps, what is social impact to you? Why was um, social entrepreneurship or creating a social enterprise really important to you at the inception of building this business? Um, and then Sagal, I would love to get your perspective on this as well. My intake with um, social entrepreneurship is that, or social enterprises in general, is that you're not running as a normal company would and then doing good at the end of the year because it feels good, right? You're not just you know doing business as usual, um, getting the most for your buck or, you know, maximizing your profit because, you know, that's the way you do business. Um, social entrepreneurs at the very core of them running business usually entails embedding a social cause or a social impact to some degree um, in how they do business to begin with. So for us, for City, at the core of what we do is not just to sell soap and then donate proceeds to a refugee community. At the core of what we do is to create and generate employment opportunities to vulnerable communities to then allow um, to help promote self-reliance in these communities as a result of that. Um, it's not just to donate profits to a marginalized community and say our work is done. It's really about being much more involved in the process. And so I think the difference between social entrepreneurs or social enterprises um, is, is the mission that they hold and what they're trying to achieve in that process. It's a difference in philosophy by which we live as, as a company, as a corporation, as an entity. And there is a, a constant, and I, I think I touched on this a lot in the earlier question, which is that there is the distinction between 
your everyday company, small business, and a social enterprise is that you are responsible or you're holding yourself responsible to a community, to a, a greater cause other than yourself. And, and it's, you know, people often use the, the uh, phrase triple bottom line, right? People, planet, profit. Um, I think that that in a way is a bit antiquated now, to be honest, because at the end of the day, all companies really should be paying attention to people, planet, and profit. If they're not, they're not sustainable, and that's to their demise, honestly. Um, I think that mm. uh, social enterprise really should be the norm, um, but that's just me. That's just, I don't know if I'm, I don't mean to speak for Nora, but I think we can agree that that there really is something to be said for it beyond just like doing good for others. It's it's going to be to the benefit of everyone if if enterprises become social. Yeah, it's good business in more ways than just um, doing good or you know building um, businesses that can be potentially profitable. I think that is a huge myth that you can't have um, a for-profit social enterprise. That is a thing. That is welcome. Like, there are definitely different business structures that are not just charity, that are not just nonprofit structures um, that can bring to life social enterprise and this kind of philosophy that, that you're mentioning, Jackie. I love that positioning. Sagal, anything else to help our listeners conceptualize what is a social enterprise versus not a social enterprise? Um, is there a way to even measure or quantify if you're doing enough good? How do you approach this conversation if you've never even heard this term before? Those are great questions. And I, I have to say, I completely agree with Nura and, and Jacqueline as well. I think we have to, I think sometimes when I have these conversations with organizations, we talk a little bit about language because language is also a way to exclude, right? It's a measure and a way to exclude organizations. And so, um, when I have these conversations with folks, um, when we talk about the word social enterprise, we think, okay, well, there are charities and nonprofits that for years and years and decades and decades, centuries that have been operating in a way that a social enterprise does, but not necessarily using the word social enterprise and nonprofits and charities have been doing that for, for many, many days, um, many years. Um, and it goes the same with indigenous communities and first nations, Métis and, um, uh, Inuit women who are operating uh, businesses or ventures or or charities that operate social enterprises, they might not use the language, but as we have a conversation, they're understanding that they are. And um, sometimes it's a little bit traumatic to realize, hey, I've been not able to access funding because I'm not using the appropriate language or the right language. And so I think it's important to have those types of discussions with with organizations, and that's part of what the investment readiness program is. There's a type. There's also an awareness that's embedded into the program. So investment awareness is just as important, I think, as uh, kind of investment readiness. Mm. But I completely agree with Nora and Jacqueline in terms of um, how they kind of. Uh, define social enterprise uh, work. So bridging right there, Seagal, what is the investment readiness program? We get asked this very often through Startup Canada. And um, I think there's there's interpretation of what this is. There are There's a continuum of support of what these offerings are. Uh, and then there's an entire network of support organizations that are working within the IRP. So can you explain to our listeners what the investment readiness program is? We're going to use short form IRP. Um, and then what does the Canadian Women's Foundation do at large? And then as it particularly pertains to the IRP? The investment readiness program, I think it's a question we get, I get quite a bit, and it does sound vague, 
to be quite honest, it, it is really vague, right? People ask, well, what is investment? What's the investment? And what are we being ready for? And to, you know, kind of put it simply, I mean, I say right off the bat, it's a misnomer because it isn't an investment. It's not something repayable that you pay back. It's not financing. It's not a loan. Um, but essentially, it's a funding opportunity, like a grant opportunity for organizations that are looking for ways to get themselves ready to access investment, to get themselves ready to access a loan or equity or social financing in the future. And when I say social finance, I think it's just essentially it's investment or lending. It's a form of lending that delivers either a kind of a social, cultural or environmental impact as well as a financial return, right? That's the piece that's different for social finance, that financial return for investors. And so the IRP is essentially a national program. It's funded by the government of Canada and it supports kind of a whole range of organizations that are really the ones that are solving Canada's kind of pressing challenges, everything from uh, affordable housing to food insecurity to uh, climate uh, resiliency. And so the broader goals of the investment readiness program is to build the capacity of organizations, get them to participate in this growing kind of market, because we know down the pipeline that the, the government of Canada proposed nearly a billion dollar fund, a $755 million fund called the Social Finance Fund, which is essentially there um, over the next decade that uh, a fund that organizations can access. And so this program is kind of a primer, kind of getting organizations ready to access either the fund, the social finance fund or other investment opportunities. Um, and so the, the the Canadian Women's Foundation, we are one of very uh, one of four organizations across Canada. There's Community Foundations of Canada, Foundation for Black Communities, Chantier de l'Economie Sociale based in Quebec and the National Association of Friendship Centers. And I think it's important to recognize that there are other delivery and funding uh, partners across Canada, encouraging organizations to access this type of funding. And for us, I think the program, what I'm really focused on is encouraging uh, the readiness and growth of women and gender diverse organizations so they can uh, participate in this marketplace, especially those that don't consider themselves uh, part of this ecosystem, right? So. We're really prioritizing funding to those organizations and to those women who face uh, kind of the multiple barriers and where the community need is the greatest. Beautifully said, Sagal. It's, it's no simple feat to go through that that roster of um, of offerings and that continuum of support that the investment readiness program and the social finance fund are intended are sort of intending to build. Uh, so beautifully done there, uh, Nora and Jacqueline. Walk us through your funding experience. Was funding for your social impact venture a challenge? Was it um, you know, really hard to find existing social finance opportunities? What was your funding journey? Um, and, and how did you end up hearing about the IRP? Because we started as a social enterprise and because we started in an already existing vulnerable community, we knew that we had to always find alternative modes of bringing in revenue. So we couldn't exclusively rely on just the sales of the products that we were selling. We knew that we had um, other fees that were going to come um, into play. And so we were always, um, you know, seeking out, you know, whether it was grant opportunities or um, maybe in the beginning when we first launched, we, we ran a couple of crowdfunding campaigns to help us when we were just a little tight on cash um, to, to, to run the company. Um, and oftentimes we were stuck in this, in this, uh, I guess, as part of our journey, and when you're running a small business or when you're getting started, there's a big, vast difference from like 
you getting to the point of scale and where you're starting to produce and, and, and bringing in proper, you know, like profit. And then the point where you're just still, you know, side hustling and like pushing, you know, you're, you're, you're doing kind of like organic, um, um, you know, pushes here and there. Um, and so for us, we were stuck in this weird position in the company where we had the potential of like, you know, we, we do have opportunities to grow, but that we're just stuck because it's just, it's costing us way too much money or, you know, going from this point to this point just needed that big um, leap or that big jump. And because as a social enterprise, our growth in revenue wasn't as strong as let's say a tech in like a tech company, or maybe an alternative company that was sourcing the products at like very, very high margins. Um, we had to kind of look at alternative ways. We knew that if we opened the pathway to start, you know, bringing in angel or VC investment right away, we would lose majority equity of the company because we weren't, you know, our revenue wasn't high enough. Um, and so when I, when I first learned about IRP, I remember I had already missed the deadline and I was like, oh no. Okay. So this is, I like flagged it. I, I put it on the radar. I, I put it on my calendar. I was like, okay, I know that they're going to be opening up funding soon. Um, and you know, what was the requirement to get to there? I knew that, you know, um, at the time we were launching our first ever subscription box, um, that really worked on not just pushing out our products forward, but also, um, partnering with local women owned brands and, you know, ethical, uh, brands that aligned with our mission so that we can also push that forward, but also create job opportunities in the same, at the same time through the funding that we got through IRP. Um, so it was it was one of the larger grants we've ever gotten as a company. Um, you know, we've, we've always gotten access to smaller ones, but this was on the larger side. And it was great for us to kind of really push more aggressively things that we were, I would say, worried to do because it just would cost too much money for us. And because we knew that the funding was available through um, IRP, whether it was hiring you know, marginalized women to join our team and having more consistent employment for them um, as a result of the funding or investing a little money in marketing that could push our company a little bit more, you know, to the top. Those were little things that we were able to do as a result of the funding because we knew that, you know, if we were just relying on sales coming in, we, we would have to prioritize, okay, what are we spending our money on and how are we going to utilize those funds? And so um, having access to alternative revenue streams is really important for us and and allows us to just really be able to think bigger than like what we're currently doing right now. Mm, that's a great point. And Sagal, for those that um, are interested in, in learning more about the IRP or what that um, one deadline so that like Nora, they're putting notifications in their calendars, et cetera, to be prepared, what that application process looks like, how is that different than maybe some other traditional lending um, processes that they may have experienced before? Um, what are some of the key questions or considerations that they can be thinking about in preparation for this type of application? Um, and walk us through any pieces of advice that you have for founders as they're potentially conceptualizing that process for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think I really want to say also how amazing Nura and Jacqueline were when they received uh, their first IRP funds. They, I, I think they received it, if I'm not mistaken, at the height of the pandemic, the first kind of lockdowns. And they Oof. really did. Um, I mean, I don't know how they did it, but they did an amazing job really pivoting in the midst of the pandemic when the first uh, subscription box was uh, launched. So kudos to you both and 
lots of uncertainty and you're uh, kind of, that's, it's an testament to, to your resilience too. Um, so the applications are, it's great timing because we're launching the applications near the end of November of this year. It's our second launch of applications. Um, the exact date of the, the launch hasn't been shared yet. It's, it won't be posted on our website until uh, kind of mid-end of November. But I really encourage folks to uh, sign up to our community initiatives newsletter. It's a great uh, source of information to uh, find all funding opportunities at the Canadian Women's Foundation. So that's kind of the first uh, piece of information. It's really important to check out the, the website and that newsletter. Um, in terms of kind of what founders can do to prepare in advance of applying, I would say is uh, really checking out the website. We have a whole host of resources to support founders. There's uh, assessment criteria. There's a frequently asked questions. There's glossary. There's kind of step-by-step -step instruction guidelines. We provide the entire application upfront so you don't have to access the online portal to um, access the questions. Uh, the timing is really good because we also um, just launched the, uh, sorry, we just announced the previous cohort of funding recipients. So I'd really encourage founders to check out who has received funding before. Look at the organizations on our website and some of those kind of innovative um, enterprises that receive funding and it'll give you give a good idea of who we would re uh, receive funding in the second cycle. I think one of the best ways to uh, really prepare as well for the application is to attend some of our uh, info sessions. We have drop-in style Q&A sessions where folks can attend a session. There's no presentation, no webinar, but it's really more like a drop-in class, like back in college or university, see your, your teaching assistant and just ask us any question about your proposal, about the program itself. Um, and so we hold those periodically throughout the, uh, the launch of the application. But I think that if there's one takeaway, the number one thing I ask any applicant or prospective organization is to just get in touch with us. We, we'd love to have one-on-one -on -one calls, uh, coaching calls to just try to decipher the funding and um, have really extremely frank uh, conversations. You know, is the, for example, funding a, a waste of time, right? Uh, is it, uh, does it not align with your organization? Um, we want to make sure that our, our goals are aligned with the organization's goals and especially smaller organizations that maybe are under-resourced um, may not have the time and the capacity to fill in uh, an application. And so sometimes the outcomes of these calls are, are really great because they're able to recognize that, you know, the funding is just not appropriate at this particular time, or they want to take a little bit more time like Nura did in the first cycle to um, kind of strengthen their proposal or, their project for the next funding cycle. And so I think these really candid one-on-one -on -one phone calls and conversations is uh, the best point. It's it's really about honest, you know, clarity and uh, giving honest feedback about uh, what to do in the application. Um, we really, I really don't want organizations to kind of jump through hoops. And I think some organizations uh, feel that they, they do have to kind of jump through hoops to access funding because there's so many different grants and funding um, applications available across Canada. Um, you know, we see so folks sometimes rewording their application to make it fit into our narrative as a funder, right, in order to access the funding. And so we're really aware of that. And so what we do is we try to have conversations one on one, have those phone calls and do a lot of proactive outreach to uh, organizations that might not be in our network at all as well. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate it, Tagal. I remember when I we had applied the first time on um, actually getting a call from the Canadian Women's Foundation to get clarity on something that I had written in the application. 
And I really appreciated that because the person that called me was like, okay, we just want to make sure that this is what you meant because this is what you understand of your, and then it was really nice to see that they weren't just trying to like, you know, you know, dodge points off if we, you know, we didn't say it the right way. And, you know, because we had written the application a particular way and we had a, like, I, re I recall at the time, it was like a really insightful conversation and I, I gave me the opportunity to ask questions, but also, you know, the, per the, the team member from Canadian Women's Foundation was also like, okay, so this is what you're trying. And, and just getting that clarity and knowing that we had the opportunity to like, just give our perspective of what we were trying to apply for. And it wasn't just like, you know, you're in or out type of thing. Like it just, I felt more like, you know, how can we help you achieve your goal and how can we kind of get there? And I, I really appreciated that in the process and made me feel a little bit more comfortable. And, um, you know, like Sagal was saying, sometimes we feel like we have to fit within, you know, uh, you know, a certain sphere to like be able to access funding and, um, working with Canadian Women's Foundation has been really, really, uh, I would say more seamless than, than other organizations that have allocated funding. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that's definitely one of the benefits of, of this program overall. It is an investment in more ways than one. Like it, it does feel more personal. There's a lot of thought and effort being put into the, the interactions. Um, and for founders who have never been through an application process, mm -hmm. other types of organizations that might be much more um, stringent or, um, sort of bottomless. Sometimes yeah. you can be sending through these applications and never hear anything. You may not hear if you're successful. You may not hear if you're not. Yeah. Uh, and that can be really yeah. erosive to the trust you even have in yourself and, and the investability of your business overall. And that's a very challenging process. Um, so I think with the IRP, there's, there's really great partners that have your back um, and that recognize you as both a human being and a founder simultaneously, which is really important. I don't know if I answered your other question, Kayla, about kind of walking through what to expect, how long the process takes. Um, sure, I, I have, I think there's uh, quite a bit of information to share, but I'll, I'll try to minimize it as much as possible. I think I'll take, <laughs> no, we love the deep. I'll, I'll think I'll take, okay, good, good. I'll take a moment to at least describe what we have planned for the next funding cycle. It's a little bit different from previous funding cycles in that we have three kind of pots of funding available. We're calling them kind of three streams. So we have uh, one called the impact stream, one will be called the catalyst stream and one the systems change or collaborative stream. And so for the impact stream, it's going to be a funding pot in the range of 45 to 75,000. And this is really geared to organizations that are launching and growing operations and deepening their impact. Folks like City, um, Social Enterprise and Nora and Jackie. Um, the catalyst stream is a little bit like seed funding. If you think of the venture capital space, smaller amounts between 5,000 to 15,000. And this is for an opportunity for organizations to explore social enterprise development or revenue generation um, opportunities. And so say you have an idea, you, you'd like to pilot it, um, you kind of have an identified need or a market need, and you want to articulate that need a little bit better, or perhaps, you know, pilot uh, um, a service or a product or prototype uh, a product or service. So that type of funding is for kind of organizations in that, in that stage or sphere. And then the last funding stream that's available is between 35,000 and 65,000. It's called the systems change or collaborative stream. And this stream is really focused on addressing kind of that ecosystem gap. How are organizations addressing the systemic issues um, in the intersecting areas of kind of gender and social finance, those overlapping areas. And so the intent of this, when I kind of refer to 
systems change, I think we were talking about root causes rather than kind of the symptoms, right? How do we alter um, and transform structures or mindsets and power dynamics that are involved in this in this community or in this sector? Um, and so this could be focused on case studies, research, sector research, developing and kind of enhancing the network development between organizations. And so there's quite a range of funding that's available that will be available um, when we launch in uh, November. Um, I didn't point out before that the online process, the whole application process is online. So it, I think it's a benefit and it's also a deterrent when uh, it's online because um, we're able to kind of streamline the process. It's a one-step application process. So you choose the stream of funding and you submit your application. But we're aware also that um, some rural, remote, and isolated northern communities might not have access to good internet connectivity. And so we do offer um, alternative uh, ways to submit a proposal or submission for those types of organizations. And we're always trying to kind of figure out the best way to have more accessible ways to funding. So we hope that in the next funding cycle that will alleviate some of that pressure. In terms of the application itself, um, we kind of ask the same uh, basic organizational questions. So um, how much are you, you know, the money question, right? How much are you requesting? Uh, which communities or populations are you working with or serving? Uh, where in Canada do you work? And then we ask a series of questions based on the venture proposal itself. We try to minimize that to 10 questions. So a brief summary of the project itself, kind of sharing your revenue or business model with us, and then any partnerships that you have uh, involved in, in the project. And from in terms of timeline, that's about a six month process. So it ranges from actually four, four months to six months. So from the time we launched the application um, and to the time you receive the money in your hand or in your organization's bank account, um, that's about a four to six month uh, process. And so it'll probably be uh, really early spring uh, next year. Amazing. Thank you, Sagal. And I think, you know, through these processes, the, the transparency piece is so important. Often, you know, you send through these applications and you're not entirely sure what the next steps are going to be. Um, it's really helpful to see what that um, looks like at that transparency from your organization it is fantastic. The Startup Women Advocacy Network, SWAN, is a curated group of 13 women-identifying early-stage entrepreneurs who advocate and champion the needs of women entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast. Minicycle specializes in the circular economy for kids' fashion. It offers new and pre-loved clothes for 0 to 14-year-olds and guarantees to buy back everything once the kids outgrow their clothes. Then they wash, repair, and or upcycle everything to resell to other parents and make the clothes live on. As a mom with a master's degree in environmental studies, Minicycle's founder and president, Jad Robitaille, combines her enthusiasm for environmental issues, her knowledge of business management, and her passion for making sustainable fashion accessible to all. We are beyond excited to have Jad as our Quebec Swan representative. Visit mini-cycle.com. That's mini-cycle.com. Memory Keeper is a digital storytelling platform and application that allows you to save, store, design, protect, and tell your story. At Memory Keeper, they value your privacy and security. They ensure you control the narrative of your story. You decide who contributes, whom you want it shared with, and when you want it shared. You're the memory maker. They are your memory keeper. After having lost someone special to her, Jessica McNaughton, 
founded Memory Keeper to ensure we all have a way to collect, craft, and protect our memories for years to come. We are so thrilled to have Jessica as our Saskatchewan Swan representative. Visit MemoryKeeper.com. That's MemoryKeeper.com. Dingy Jess Adventures is an outdoor adventure company that offers unique river trips for communities, organizations, youth, and anyone who wants to have an experience of a lifetime and gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for the land. Residing on the land and home of the Kwanlin Dun and Tan Kwachin territory in Whitehorse, Yukon, Bobby Rose Kiwi launched Dingy Just Adventures in 2021 with the respect, love, and permission of her elders. One of the first Gwich'in women to launch an outdoor adventure company, she's very proud and dedicated to make every trip unique and customized for Dingy Just Adventures guests. We are honored to have Bobby Rose as our Yukon Swan representative. Visit D-I-N-J-I-I-Z-H-U-H.com. Visit www.startupcan.ca and head over to the Explore tab. Under Startup Women, you'll find more information about the Advocacy Network and the incredible work of these amazing founders. Now that we've learned all the fabulous things of the IRP, the application process, understanding some of the scope of support that you're able to access through that initiative, um, being able to actually communicate your story and your impact. This is a huge part of this, this process, uh, both in seeking traditional investment, but just marketing your organization overall. There are so many businesses that consumers are supporting. Um, how do you sort of cut through that noise when you are making a significant impact? So Jacqueline, I'd love to pass this over to you first with City, you know, this, this very clear mission to educate, employ, and empower refugees and displaced communities. It's such a powerful mission and it's so important. But what have been some of those challenges um, that you've had to communicate what you do and the impact that you make in simple terms, but navigating a very complex mission? Yeah, I think the simplicity in it comes down to the human connection, which is a lot of times hand in hand with storytelling. Um, for us, we can publish all the impact numbers we want, but at the end of the day, people are going to connect most with another face, another person, uh, you know, a mother just like them who might be the only one earning income for her family and her husband's unable to work and she's got five, six kids at home and a mother-in-law she's caring for. Those are the types of things that people really connect to and really, um, you know, that impacts them. Uh, so I think that's the simplest way to to communicate impact to people is is just drawing those connections between human stories. Um, when it comes to the more complicated uh, or complex, you know, um, side of things, when when you're looking at okay, well, how do I quantify this, or how do I put it into a document or report on this? Um, that was a real challenge for us, actually, up until a couple of years ago, we were struggling with this. I, you know, I, Nora and I had a, a meeting. I remember this was kind of at the height of the pandemic when, when things had just started and we were, we, uh, along with so much going on for the business, um, 
we came to this, uh, we had this <laughs> come to Jesus moment or whatever you want to call it, this, this moment where we were like, okay, we need to figure out how to communicate to people what is our impact? What are we doing at the end of the day? Aside from selling these products and working with this community, um, what what is the impact here? And so, and and how do we how do we tell that we're making an impact over time, right? Um, and so we, at the same time, a, a former member of our advisory board actually had had sent me some information on an event that was going on. It was a uh, a partnership of uh, international organizations focused on refugee communities that had come together to form the Refugee Self-Reliance Initiative. And they were launching this tool called the Self-Reliance Index. And it was kismet. It was, it was really just one of these who were like, oh, this is a tool we can use, you know, and, and it aligned perfectly with our mission. Um, and actually, after we had learned more about the Refugee Self-Reliance Initiative and their mission to create self-reliance for refugee communities and displaced communities globally, and what self-reliance was defined as, which really came down to meeting your basic needs without the, um, the strong interjection of major humanitarian aid support, right? So being able to pay your bills at the end of the day, being able to pay your rent, to feed your kids, to do all of that on a, a you know a dignified income. When we got to know more about this and how the tool was measuring self-reliance based on these domains that touched on all aspects of life, when it and included it, education, income, um, it included social capital, which is essentially your connections to your community. All these things were like, this is city. You know, this is this is what we are always talking about as our organization and, and what's important to us. So um, we started adopting the tool. Um, the tool measures 12 domains, uh, some of which I just mentioned. Um, it also measures things like debt and uh, households uh, ability to to meet all these basic needs and then kind of uh, sets them up on a sliding scale of one to five one being the least self-reliant and five equating to self-reliance basic self-reliance of a household it does it on a household basis not on an individual basis um, which also was really important to us um, and so, uh, that tool is something that we use to, to measure and document the self-reliance of the households we work with on a regular basis. So first and foremost, our employees and our, our team members in their households, right? So are our team members meeting their basic needs? That is the most important thing to us. And at that point, after our, our team members are able to meet their basic needs within their households and their homes, okay, what about our, our strategic partners, meaning our community-based partners that we source our materials from, we source our products from, are the people associated with their programs, those beneficiaries, are they meeting their basic needs? Are they self-reliant? And so it's kind of a, um, I, I guess you could say it's like this nested approach. So first at the core, 
and then moving outwards. We're really at the beginning stages of this, right? So we just started using the self-reliance tool after 2020. Um, it's, it's not a simple process because you're not just asking people, oh, how much money do you make? And are you able to pay your rent every month? You know, there are lots of questions there that really get at the, the holistic picture. Um, but we really do believe that, that that is what we consider impact. When we first started this journey with measuring impact, we really wanted to, we asked ourselves, like, are we really making a difference? What does it, why does it matter that we're doing the work that we do? Sometimes as a small company, you know, you, you look at those companies that are sharing impact reports of, you know, impacting tens of thousands of people. And you're like, well, wait, we're such a small company. We're only employing X amount or we're only reaching X amount of households. Does it really matter? And when we started the journey and when, and I, re I recall when we first started um, with the self-reliance index and kind of saying, okay, we need to know for ourselves before we can tell people and before we can communicate our story, we need to know internally, are we making a difference? Where do we need to make improvements before we kind of can be so that not, not just so we can relay the story, but so we can understand internally what, what impact we're really making. And I think that was, that was the core is, is, it allowed us to take um, a better um, quantitative understanding by looking at the data in real time of saying like, oh, okay, this is what we've come out with when we measured our data. This is what it's telling us we need to fix. This is, the, these are the gaps that we are looking, um, that we need to, that we've identified in the process that we need to kind of come in as a social enterprise or where we can maybe refer off other organizations because maybe we can't take responsibility for them as a company. So um, I think impact measurement is not just to uh, report on things, but also so that you as a company know where you, you fit into the larger equation when you're working with these different, you know, communities or beneficiaries or, you know, whatever social, um, uh, you know, issue that you're, that you're identifying and working with. I think a lot of people believe that they need to have, and Nora touched on this, like they need to affect thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people at one time in order to be impactful. And I think that's, a lot of people get caught up in the numbers game, right? And so they're like, okay, um, let's figure out a way to to tell this story so that we say we're we're um, employing five thousand people instead of five hundred or five hundred people instead of fifty because we gave this person a job one time um, to to do something and and but that doesn't equate to long term impact. That's one day where you gave that person a job and that's it, you know. And so for us impact means long-term impact. It means, okay, we are providing you with a job long-term that, you, and it's, it's the definition of impact is based on that community's needs and what they determine impact is. It's not about what we think impact is as Jackie and Nora. And I mean, Sophia, our co-founder, she's a member of this community. And, and oftentimes in conversation, she'll interject and she'll be like, guys, like, Let's have a conversation with everybody. Let's figure out what they need first. And that's really what it comes down to is like, 
we can talk mm-hmm. all day about UN SDGs and, and all of this stuff, but you can choose a UN SDG you want to measure as part of your social enterprise, but that might not be the UN SDG goal that's important to that community. That community might be like, actually, the most important thing to us is decent work and economic growth, not, um, not necessarily uh, you know, ending, uh, you know, poverty in all its forms, but first we just need to have jobs or we just need this. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for us, it, it really was a learning process. It definitely wasn't something that we understood overnight. And for a long time, I think we, we thought that our mission was more focused on education, but then it turned out that education a lot of these women were past their educational, you know, stage of life where they were like able to take the time to go to university and like get a degree. They needed a job now or yesterday. Um, so I mean, I think there's the numbers game that people try to play, but for us, we're not a unicorn, you know, we're, everybody's like trying to be the next unicorn and we're a workhorse. Like we, we go out and we sit with the community. We sit with our three artisans and the, the two community-based organizations that we work with day in and day out. And we, we fly out to Jordan and we sit down with them and we ask them, what do you need? Um, so it, it, these are all such important points because impact is such a big word. It is so vague. It is so um, mm-hmm. different in so many different organizations. And you can pull on so many different strings to try to impact the result of a particular type of impact. Like it's it's very complicated, I think, for so many organizations. I feel this leading a nonprofit as well. It's not just the number of lives that you touch. It's the depth of what that engagement looks like, the utility of that experience, the helpfulness of it. But how do you sort of measure some of these even like warm and fuzzies that, you know, if somebody gets very inspired by a program, then that leads them to, to sort of change a behavior. That measurement and that obsession with numbers that we come back to, that's not going to capture the whole sentiment that's felt around an experience. Um, and I find myself, I, I gravitate to the numbers. Like I'm show me the data, show me a concrete goal that I can then sort of um, track to. Uh, and that's that's complicated. You need a North Star and you need some type of guiding light that you can rally around, but there it's so much more, uh, there's so much more depth in in that conversation than just, you know, we're trying to meet a sales target and that is what everybody is aligning to. Um, so it's complicated listeners. This is, this is sort of the key, key message here. <laughs> what you noted was, was, it's also very important because when you're running a social enterprise and you're engaging with impact investors and different people that are in that industry, and then you have conversations with them about what you're trying to achieve. And they're like, Hmm, that's not really like super impactful. Like we're looking for something bigger. And so it often leaves us questioning like, but we are making an impact, but it is impacting a community, but right. And oftentimes you're, you're forced to be put into these bubbles of like identifications of what is considered true impact and what isn't. And then I've had, I've, I've been in, you know, zoom calls pitching for city and I've been told "Mm, that's not really scalable. That's not really, you know, the impact we're looking to invest in. And I'm like, well, in the real world, like it's not, you know, I don't know, like, I've seen organizations and and oftentimes Jackie and I will like chuckle when we read an article about organizations that we're familiar with that will be like, you know, we've created 3000 employment, you know, you know, know, jobs. And I'm like, 
we would know, you would know if you walk into, you know, a, a community, a, like a, a 20,000 people. Is, yeah. And, and you, you see 3,000 households if you see 3, making a living, people, like that would exactly. change, you know, it makes, it, <laughs> everything. It changes the ecosystem, right? Like, you know, when you are literally creating those 3,000 jobs that you're saying that you're creating, we should see that impact from the ecosystem side. We should see people pulling themselves out of debt, starting to spend more on the economy. Like there is, it's not, it's a trickle effect. It's not just one person getting a job and you're done. It's really just about moving systems and moving, um, you know, elements within that community at its core. And then you know, and, and creating that domino effect outside. But you don't see that sometimes because there's a problem with the numbers. It's not adding up. There's something that they're saying they're doing something, but really it doesn't trickle down to, sh- to see it in real, in real time. And that's something we're always very careful, very conservative when we share our numbers because we're like, are we truly actually touching and impacting these people? Or was this like a one-off? You know, like we won't, we won't identify someone that only worked with us one day for, you know, a sub- position or a job because that wasn't a long-term offer you know that wasn't something long-term and I think it's important to hold organizations accountable that do share those big numbers to say like are you really making that large of an impact because we should see that we should see that at the core and I wouldn't I wouldn't say we're conservative we're just thoughtful about it like we're we just take a more thoughtful approach. And and that's not to say there aren't other organizations, other companies, social enterprises out there that are doing the same thing. There certainly are. But it's it's not the trend. It's not, like Nora was saying, like you have impact investors sometimes that'll come through and, and see the thoughtfulness and see the intention and the work that's behind that impact strategy. And they'll be like, okay, like I see what you're doing here. And there are other people who are like, I just want to be able to say that I invested in a company that impacted 5,000 people, no matter how it did it, if it was for one day or for 100 days. So that's really, I think, also in the investment side of things and talking about investment readiness, you really need to be ready to know who you are as a company before you go seeking out investors. And that's part of the reason why we're like, we haven't sought investors yet because we needed the time to understand ourselves as an organization, as a company, to be confident in who we were before we started going to investors and pitching ourselves and trying to like fit into their definition of impact. And Sagal, bringing this back to your experience and so many of the different um, founders and leaders that you work with, how do you conceptualize or sort of share recommendations on on reach versus impact? Um are there considerations or frameworks? Like I think, um, Jackie and Nora, the, the tool that you mentioned, um, illustrations like that, like, are there any resources that, um, social enterprises or social entrepreneurs can use to demonstrate the potential, but also be authentic and honest around what that kind of depth of, um, true impact they're able to achieve on an individual or kind of collective level is? That was a big question. Yeah. I mean, I'm completely, I think Nora and Jackie really, um, really described it really well, kind of the challenges uh, in measuring impact and understanding it, understanding the difference between reach and impact. Um, for us as a funder, I think kind of, I'll answer your question a different way, Kayla, but I think for, for us, what we see is because we have a bird's eye view of the different organizations that apply for funding, communicating the story and communicating impact is not a one size fits all approach. 
in in no way because each organization is is so different and has a different way of sharing information and has a different story to tell um it is i think maybe a little bit generic but it's i think it's extremely important to adapt the contents to adapt uh um the information how you tell that story for the audience you're trying trying to reach and um in terms of kind of impact measurements and the data analysis and kind of gathering the evidence base behind it there's different frameworks that we share with organizations sometimes we share the common approach which is one of the organizations in Canada's part of the um investment readiness program ecosystem there are service providers across Canada that really support organizations to delve into this work a lot more so that they can understand how to measure impact what is their strategy how do i communicate my story there's folks like lift impact partners i think was doing a fantastic job um you know really uh, being a a great service provider they they've really owned in on this uh, expertise and this this area of impact measurements they have um a lot of one-on-one coaching opportunities they do a lot of blended kind of collective learning uh with uh social enterprises and organizations they do a lot of online content unfortunately not in person because of the the some of the restrictions over the last couple of years but they're a wonderful resource um and a and a great organization to um contact in terms of understanding what impact measurement is and how to kind of uh, work within your organization to understand that through the IRP program what we've done is in addition to kind of the funding model we do provide sometimes some wrap around supports not so much uh, as the same level I'd say as incubators or accelerator type programs but we do provide some kind of uh, holistic measures to support organizations on their journey so in addition to the funding we put them in touch with experts like lift philanthropy partners or lift impact partners um like the organizations like inweave or you know those that are in the ecosystem uh, in the IRP to connect them to those types of expertise that have um the very specific skills and technical assistance that's needed um for for kind of measuring impact not to say that every organization needs to contact an expert to help them kind of figure out what uh how to tell their story and communicate impact but it is a resource that's available and there's many organizations doing this work in terms of um kind of the cohort that we work with on a, a day-to-day basis we do share uh, something we call a self-assessment investment readiness tool which includes a whole bunch of questions about uh, impact measurements and communicating your story and we ask folks to uh, complete this questionnaire we do you know phone call with them we walk them through it um and we ask them to complete it again at kind of the end of the project to try to measure progress like what happened at the beginning what happened to the end at the end and you know where were the learnings where were the improvements uh what didn't work where where were the challenges um and so we do that as part of each cycle cohort that receives funding um and so i i think impact measurement is a is a very interesting topic uh i don't think there's one definition in particular as nura and and jack jacklin have have said um but it is something that's very interesting to me because like i think you kayla i i love numbers um and i like evidence and and data gathering but um data and numbers don't tell the full story and so there's uh another kind of perspective that needs to be taken into account different pieces of the puzzle i love it so wrapping up what has been a fantastic conversation i think yeah we could go down this impact measurement side for a completely other podcast episode um jacqueline and nora i would love to get your final thoughts looking at your business pre irp post irp 
What was the impact that IRP has had on your business? What insights have you gained through this process? Um, and what's next for you both at City? I would say receiving the IRP funding allowed us to take risks that we normally probably wouldn't have taken as a business. Um, you know, uh, risks involving money that, you know, if it like that allowed us to kind of be able to be a little bit more aggressive in our approach and, you know, pivot and do something that normally would have been a lot harder if we didn't have the funding. Um, post IRP, we're definitely going to be applying again. I'm so, uh, you know, excited to use the learnings that we had, but also continue to grow in the process and continue to um, take from the learnings that, you know, we've, we've had um, in our journey with the previous funding, but also looking at what we can continue to do with existing funding that is available through, you know, the, the social finance realm that um, is a lot, is, um, you know, being granted in Canada. And I think sometimes organizations um, don't realize that, you know, you should take advantage. These are opportunities granted by the government. Like you, sh you know, you, you should go out for it, you know, take advantage of it. Um, grab it if you can, because if it helps you a little bit, you know, that that's going a long way. So that's, that's that impact right there. Um, and, and for us, it's, it's, you know, every little bit sometimes helps, um, you know, businesses like ours, you know, women owned social enterprise, serving refugee populations, you know, helping us get not as a unicorn company, but a little bit, you know, bigger, a little bit, um, uh, um, uh, greater in terms of what we can kind of serve and, and how we can achieve our, our mission at the end of the day. So any final words of wisdom to share with our listeners from your perspective, Canadian Women's Foundation? Apply, like Nora said, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> advantage. Take advantage of the funding and take advantage of the program. Um, get in contact, call, email. Um, we have uh, IRP staff available to kind of uh, answer your questions and um, yeah. Just be aware that the next funding cycle will be launching in, in uh, November or end of November um, and not to um, and make sure that you really give us a phone call. I think that's I cannot reiterate that anymore. It's really important to just get in contact with us because we do want to encourage as many organizations as possible uh, to access this funding. Sing it. I love it. I love it. Very clear call to action, listeners. You've got tools, you've got support, you've got the wraparound services, um, and you've got uh, some great stories of inspiration from Jacqueline and from Nora from today. Thank you so much to you all for joining us on the Startup Women podcast. This has been a fabulous episode. Um, and thanks for, for taking the time with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you so much, Kayla. To learn more about Nora, Jacqueline, and City Social Enterprise, head to www.sittisoap.com. To learn more and prepare for the next round of IRP funding, head to irp-ppi.ca. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles and is made possible with the support of BDC and Scotiabank so we can continue to power women identifying entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources.
Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.